Amen. As Nathan said, my name is Ryan, and I'm one of the, the pastors here. Uh, just a heads up, so for February, we're going to have Board Games Cafe come back. That will happen bi-weekly if you've... you've Yes, yes, I did. <laughs> uh, so Board Games Cafe will happen every other week, uh, Sunday afternoon, and then in the evenings, we're going to alternate between pickleball and uh, dodgeball and some other uh, more active sports with uh, uh, balls. <laughs> yeah, okay. Speaking of games, speaking of games, in December, my mom and I watched uh, the reality show, The Traders, Canada, Canadian version. Oh, okay. I, uh, 20 people competed for a potential $100,000 cash prize as either faithfuls or traders. If you're not familiar with the, the game, let me, let me explain it to you. As a trader, no one knows that you're a trader except for the other traders, and all you have to do is not get eliminated. If you are a faithful, you have to not get eliminated, but also you have to eliminate all the traders. You see, each night two players are eliminated in two separate ways. Firstly, all the players meet for a public vote to eliminate one person, uh, ideally a trader. And they discuss this for a while, and, and then they vote. Secondly, the traders meet afterwards privately and decide on one person to eliminate. For those of you wondering, yes, this is just one big giant game of mafia or <laughs> werewolf. For the faithful who truly had no idea who the traitors were, uh, faithful and traitors alike would pounce on them, or like vultures. Vultures don't pounce, but they would come down on them like vultures and try to convince them of their theory on who the traitors were and who they should vote for. You know, Frank is the traitor because he's too loud. And Mai is the traitor because she's too quiet. Or Mike is the traitor because he's too perfectly in the balance of both. Throughout the show, there would be some faithful that were actually, actually right. There were some faithful who were passionate, yet a little off, if not way off. And then there were the traitors, uh, adding uh, fuel to the flame, uh, causing misdirection and misinformation. And as I watched the show, I thought to myself, man, this is the perfect analogy to life in our modern digital age. I'm just going to switch this. Nathan, can you pass me? I, tr I tried. <laughs> Till next time. All of us are faithfuls living in a world where each day we have to make decisions in the midst of a horde of voices telling us uh, how we should live and what the meaning of life is. 
each one trying to get, convince us to give them our attention, our money, our time, and ultimately uh, our very selves, our allegiance from Hollywood to DC to Wall Street. Everyone wants us to believe what they want. And they have highly efficient systems to do so. Systems that listen in to our conversations as I, we've all experienced talking to someone and then seeing the ads come up on our phone, right? Uh, systems that measure every second we spend looking at something on our phone. Uh, systems that synthesize all this data and then s- systems that send that message to us. The Social Dilemma is a Netflix documentary which came out a few years ago and features people that worked for Facebook and other social platforms. And uh, as you can see the headline, it says, the platforms that connect us also control us. I never thought I'd wear uh, jeans this loose, uh, not skinny, but here I am now. Okay, that one did not fall so well. Uh, Move on. In response to this uh, reality that we live in, uh, we're in a four-week series here at 10th called Spiritual Practices for a Digital Age. Because really the only way that we can survive, God willing, thrive in this world, in this world of mass communication and inevitably AI, if not already, is by learning particular practices and and habits that God has taught and shown through the scriptures as the keys to a healthy and flourishing life. So if you have your Bibles, there's Bibles in front of you, I want to make note of that, Uh, please turn to Mark 1.35. That's after Matthew, that second book in the New Testament, or you can follow on the screen. If you've been here for a while, you know I love it when we take out our paper Bibles and open them. And if you're able, would you stand with me to to honor God and to honor God's word? The Gospel Mark writes, Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him, and when they found him, they exclaimed, everyone is looking for you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are a God who comes to us, who wants to be with us, who who desires to speak to us. And so, God, we just pray that you would help us by your spirit to hear you. Give us more of your spirit, Lord. Pour forth your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So our text for today is in the first chapter of Mark, and yet a lot has already happened in the first 34 verses. Jesus has fought a battle with the devil and won. 
He got two people to leave their dad in a boat while they were working to follow him. Jesus meets a demon-possessed man and is just like, get out of there! And the man convulses and, and the demon leaves. And then finally one night, the night before our text, a ton of people bring to Jesus sick people and demon-possessed people. And like Oprah, Jesus is just like, you get out of there and you get out of there and you get a healing and you get a healing too. I'd keep going, but you get the point. This is the context for our text today. Jesus has a blue check mark next to his IG handle. His video of him casting out the demon has gone viral. Time magazine has written a front page story of him, and Elon Musk is looking to invest. In other words, Jesus is on fire. But maybe more specifically, theologically, the world is quickly, rapidly realizing Jesus is fire. And yet, what does Jesus do in the midst of such extraordinary popularity and success? We read he goes off to pray in solitude. Let me make three quick observations from our text. Firstly, Mark is very detailed in his description, practically redundant about Jesus' pursuit of solitude. Let's read it again slowly. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Okay, got it, Mark. Jesus prayed in the morning. Compared to his extremely nondescript two-verse account of Jesus battling the devil and winning, This feels like an essay. Secondly, the term solitary place that Mark uses is the same word for wilderness that him and the other gospel writers use to describe the place that Jesus went to fast and to fight the devil. Meaning, Jesus didn't just go into a closet or the backyard to pray. He went far away and for a long time. And then thirdly, Everyone was looking for him. Simon, the disciples are like, bro, where have you been? There's a lineup across the block. People are waiting for you. Like, let's go. Come on. Start the healing. Jesus was like the uh, latest iPhone where people slept on the sidewalk to see him. Now, if I can be honest, and hopefully we can be honest church. If I were Jesus, this is not what I would instinctively do. I'd probably go find Simon and be like, hey man, did you get that picture or a video of me healing that, that guy during sunset? Because that would be, that'd be really good for Instagram. Uh, we got to come up with a social media plan pronto. Uh, I might set up some hiring interviews, you know, like I just got these fishermen, like I don't think that they're going to do all that great in the future. So let's set up some interviews, get like the best and the brightest Israel has to offer, you know what I'm saying? 
I might heal more people and cast out more demons and just get a real strong fan base going. Or maybe if I'm honest, because you know, here we're at evening service, I just sleep in. I don't know what it's like to heal and, and cast out a bunch of demons, but I'm, I'm pretty sure it's tiring. Thankfully, thank God, Jesus is not like me. So what is Mark telling us? What is Jesus showing us? Well, I think it's this. For Jesus, central to his life, to his ministry, is undisturbed, focused time with his heavenly father. What we might simply call silence and or solitude. Dr. Reverend Timothy Keller of New York City said on our text, his opportunities, Jesus, were literally going to change the course of history. And he still thought prayer was too important to let be squeezed out. Here, in this text, we see the supreme priority of prayer. Tish Harrison Warren, an Anglican priest, wrote in an article for the New York Times this. As one who tends toward action and activity, I am often shocked when reading the Gospels by how much time Jesus spends not calling out injustice or touching lepers. Throughout his ministry, this man who could heal, who could preach, who is himself a prophet, ran from crowds and disappeared again and again to pray alone. When he spoke out against evil, he did so within a context of life punctuated by long, intentional silences. Now, if Jesus, Jesus, God incarnate, the one who is in the Father and who the Father is in, the the sinless, blameless servant of God 2,000 years ago in rural Galilee with no social media and internet thought prayer was this important. How much more do we today? Not just to get clarity or to, to clear our head, but to be with God, to actually hear God's voice. In 1 Kings, we read about a a story. God set up a meeting with the prophet Elijah. And uh, when Elijah was waiting for God on a mountain to come and speak, an earthquake happened. Uh, Yet, uh, God wasn't in it. Then a, a violent wind passed by, a wind passed by. And yet God wasn't in that either. And then a fire appeared. And yet God wasn't in that either. The one who is fire did not come through the fire. Uh, instead, he comes in a gentle, uh, gentle voice, we read. God himself says, be still and know that I am God. Mother Teresa said, we need to find God and he cannot be found in noise and restlessness. God is the friend of silence. Somehow, however, we've come to the conclusion that God is loud. 
that, that God is direct, God is blunt. And we somehow came to this conclusion to, to the expectation that if God wants to say something to us, then we will hear it. And then if we don't hear it, God has nothing to say to us, or God doesn't want to say anything to us. Yet biblically and historically, if we look into it, this is not how God communicates. Although God is the maker of of heaven and earth, the king of heaven and earth, God is, is by nature gentle. And by nature, God's voice is heard in silence. Now, although there are times in our lives when we can't hear God, the church has traditionally called this the dark night of the soul. Let me suggest, let me argue that most often, we, the reason we can't hear God is simply because we, we literally can't hear God. There's just too much noise, too, too many people talking, too many, too many things, even ourselves talking. In a study in 2017, 2017, uh, participants comprising of students were brought into a laboratory setting to undergo some tests commonly used to assess memory capacity and intelligence. The participants were randomly divided into three groups, each receiving distinct instructions. Uh, One, place your bag, uh, sorry, place your phone on your desk. Two, keep it in your pocket or bag. Or three, leave it in another room. Notably, none of these scenarios involved active phone usage. Rather, the focus was on the potential distraction arising from the awareness of the phone's presence with messages and social media updates awaiting attention. And what they found was an undeniable correlation between the distance of the phone to the participants' awareness and their test's performance. Even the mere presence of a phone in their pocket negatively impacted the student's cognitive abilities. Now, these studies, again, were done in 2017, uh, which in tech years is a lot of time. 2018 TikTok came out. Imagine what the results would be today. If anybody feels like starting to want to give me their phone when they come in uh, on Sundays, I will happily take your phone and then give it to you after service. If we want to hear God, I think we have to be in an environment uh, physically, mentally, spiritually to hear God, that, that, that allows us, enables us to hear God. Uh, Gordon Smith, uh, the president of Ambrose University and Seminary in Calgary, says this. We are embodied souls. Embodied souls. And there is consequently a direct correlation between our inner space and outer space. We need to find quiet. When we are alone with God, we can be silent before him, hear his voice, and be most keenly aware of divine mercy. 
The noise of the city and of busy human community creates a spiritual distance for the soul from its maker. We need silence before God, solitude in his presence to properly know God and discern his will. There is no substitute for this bearing of the soul before God. One more, Henry Nouwen, the Catholic writer and former Harvard professor wrote, solitude is the furnace of transformation. Without solitude, we remain victims of our society and continue to be entangled in the illusions of the false self. Solitude is the place of the great struggle and the great encounter. The struggle against the compulsions of the false self and the encounter with the loving God who offers himself as the substance of the new self. If you've ever been on a retreat or simply a vacation, I think you, you, you've experienced the power of just being in a different place and, and possibly on airplane mode. It's, it's just easier to, to connect with other people, to connect with yourself, and even to God. And so if we, if we want to hear God, then I think we just have to be able to hear God. Pretty simple, I think. Something that you probably don't know about me, I, at least I try to hide it, uh, is that I am a, a worrier. I worry about a, a lot of things. I worry about my future, uh, work, family, marriage, uh, what they will look like in my future, whether I have them in my future at all. I don't know. Uh, I live on a busy street, and when I sit on my couch by my window in the morning, I can hear the, the muffled noise, the beat of the passing cars and the yells of the construction workers. But if I, uh, but if and when I quiet myself, I often hear God uh, say something to me, often because, well, I, I need to hear it often. And it goes something like this. As much as and more than all that's being done by all the people that are already at work, I am doing so much more. I am the king of the universe and I love you. And even if you don't feel it, even if you don't see it, I am working in your life for good. Don't I take care of the flowers and the sparrows? How much more as your loving heavenly father will I take care of you? Now, this is not anything new or, or revolutionary, okay? This is not some divine theological revelation. There are lots of places in the Bible that, that, that teach this, this simple truth. But it's what I need to hear. It's what I need. Because I think if we peel back the layers, what I really need is not knowledge. It's not facts. What I need and what I think we all need is just God, period, full stop. 
the only time in scripture we get a glimpse of the father uh, speaking to Jesus is at Jesus's baptism. Uh, And the father says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. When Jesus, when Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray, he does something radical and he starts with father. In English, that's a, not the best translation. It's, what's more helpful is the word papa. Uh, this term was used by children and by adults to, uh, just to call their father in an intentional and intimate way. And then lastly, when Jesus prays, the night before he goes on the cross, he still calls God his father. He doesn't say Lord or, 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 or God, but father. And so when it comes to prayer, when it comes to, to silence and to, to solitude, uh, relationship, love is at the core, it's at its core. The heart of prayer is not give us today our daily bread or forgive us our sins or lead us not from temptation. Great prayers. Prayers we should pray often, but not the heart of prayer. The heart of prayer is is presence. Offering our presence to God and then being open and experiencing God's presence with us. Now, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not married, nor do I know what it's like to wake up to someone that loves you, loves me. I've seen it on TV, however, and I've seen it on Instagram. And I got to say, it looks pretty awesome. But I, now I know all you married people, marriage is hard. Uh, but, and, and I know those beautiful slow mornings, imagine with me. Waking up together, the sun is shining through those, those white curtains and you open up your eyes together and you go, oh, I love you. Now, I know those don't happen very often or maybe if ever. If you are married, just, I'm not a marriage expert, but I say, why don't you try to work towards that? I think it'll be good. <laughs> if it ever happens, I bet it's awesome. Like, I bet... It's, it, it changes things. It's, it's a game changer in life. And my point is that whether we are married or single, in practicing silence and solitude, we get to hear someone tell us they love us, that we are deeply valued. But not just anybody, but we get to hear God tell us that we are his beloved with whom he is well pleased. In inviting us to silence and solitude, God, in the great words of Snow Patrol, says, if I lay here, if I just lay here, would you lie with me and just forget the world? Would you just be with me? Would you just be with me and just forget all your wants and your worries because I love you and I'm going to take care of them. The Canadian psychologist and spiritual director David G. Benner said, we do not pray so that we can get God's attention. We pray 
so that God will get our attention. I'll read that again because the first time I read it, I didn't understand it either. We do not pray so that we can get God's attention. We pray so that God will get our attention. If practicing silence and solitude is new and or attractive to you, let me, let me give two, two suggestions to, to get started. First and for, foremost, the most basic thing we can all do in starting to practice silence and solitude is, you guessed it, have your phones on you less, uh, to use our devices less, and to learn to be okay with not being connected to everyone and everything at every moment. Secondly, and this is maybe the more obvious one, practice times of silence and solitude in the morning or in the evening. It's not really that, it's really not that complicated. All you have to do is, is just sit down, slow down, and be open to, to whatever God might have to say. However, it is difficult. It can be difficult. And so when attempting to engage in this practice, let me just offer three uh, suggestions. Firstly, don't come with expectations. Expectations in in any relationship, godly or human, uh, hurts the relationship. Don't don't come into it to like, God, what, what am I supposed to do today? Or what am I supposed to do with my life? Just come Expecting God's presence, maybe. Just being open to what God has to say. Trust the process. Secondly, have a short prayer to recenter you when your thoughts start going all over the place. When we think about silence and solitude, I think we often think that we just have to be, to be quiet, that our minds have to be completely empty. Um, but... Our minds are complicated and there's a conversation going on. And so it's totally okay to have a short prayer in your back pocket to use when your thoughts go all over the place. Consider a couple lines of the Lord's Prayer or just simply the words, Lord Jesus, come. Or simply Jesus. And then lastly, start small. Now I must say, uh, the goal is long periods of time, at least 20 minutes. Um, But just start with two. It's not a race. It's not a competition. Use your microwave. Use a watch. If you have to, use your phone. I think the more we can do both of these practices regularly, the more often and the more naturally we'll be able to, to hear God in our daily lives. Let me conclude. God is our gentle father who wants to to be with us and to speak to us. God isn't this demanding 
aggressive person inserting his will into our lives, nor this distant person with nothing to say. And through Christ, we have unregulated, unmediated access to God. That's incredible. We don't need animal sacrifices or human mediators to be in the presence of God or for God to be in us. God came in the flesh 2,000 years ago, and he comes to us each and every day and every moment by his spirit. Whatever our circumstances are, we are not alone if we are in Christ. We are not people who wake up alone. We are people that can wake up every morning and hear the maker of the universe, our maker, tell us he loves us and that he is well pleased with us. So, Let's not be people who live in, in distance from God. Let's, let's be people who live in intimate, close relationship. People who live with their attention given to God. People who give their attention to God. Let's be people who wake up each day uh, and who hear the gentle voice God of saying, the voice of God saying, I love you. Let's be people who just love God, love his voice, and most importantly, love his presence. Would you join me in prayer? Let's just take a moment of silence to be with God, to be in God's presence. God, you are here. You are in the foundation of this building. You are holding it together. You're in the pews that we, we sit on, keeping us up. You are in the air. You are in us. You are here. God, thank you for the privilege to be alive and to be in your presence. Help us, help us be aware of that and take great joy in it and to hear your voice in the stillness. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.